You're listening to the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network. This is Drive Time with Travis Wingfield. Back to throw Tua, looking. Flips it down the wide open! <laughs> Touchdown, Tyreek Hill! Wow, the head of that little man. I really hope you soon jump on his bandwagon. Waddle, waddle. Tua, shotgun, back to throw, looking, steps up, fires, touchdown! Okay, it's Waddle! His sixth touchdown sixth pass touchdown of, the of the day. Drive time with Travis Wingfield begins now. Let me check your pulse if you're not fired up. What is up, Dolphins, and welcome to the Drive Time Podcast, part of the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network, covering your team, your Miami Dolphins. How's it going, everybody? I am your host, Travis Wingfield, and on today's show, we're taking you right into the bye week with a look back at the season so far. We'll examine five big picture things, I think, a general five takeaways from the first 10 weeks of this Miami Dolphins season. We'll discuss the numbers from that first half, and we'll make the week 11 picks and look at what the NFL slate has to offer us during this bye week. From the Baptist Health Studios inside the Baptist Health Training Complex, this is... The Drive Time Podcast. That's another Miami Dolphins. I have been looking forward to this episode for a little bit now, just knowing that it would be a comprehensive recap and a chance to look back at the fun first half of the season without an opponent to prep for this coming Sunday. Take a look at all the numbers, the stats, the film takeaways. And that was all part of my pre-planned content coming in. But then we played the Browns and essentially gave us a real-life snapshot of the best version of really every position group on this football team. And just to peel back the kimono a little bit, you guys know my approach to coverage has always been to highlight the good and detail why some subtleties that maybe go unrecognized are reasons why you should be excited about a player, a position group, or the team in general, right? We will point out when things go wrong and talk about areas of improvement needed But that's just always been how I enjoy football, both as a fan and wanted my coverage to reflect that. You can't be the best version of yourself if you're not genuinely yourself, right? And frankly, with McDaniel coming down here and just changing everything, it's honestly empowered me to be more of myself on the podcast. And I hope that's reflected by the absolute silly goose time that we tend to have here, especially during the midst of a winning streak. I just wanted to give that little mini monologue heading into our takeaways because, well, how can you be anything but positive, excited, and extremely hopeful about this team's potential this year? And frankly, that's the number one thing that stands out to me above anything else with the takeaways. And this is borrowing a little bit from my fourth takeaway in the big picture items, but fostering this environment of playing as one, a complete team that prioritizes winning above all else. And look, I think this is probably the case in most locker rooms, or at least a lot of them. Like these are pros, they're guys that have understood that since Pee Wee, the win is the most important thing, the only thing. And that's all a prelude to watching this game on Sunday because watch Tyreek celebrate Alec Ingold and Jeff Wilson's touchdowns. Watch Jalen Waddle throw up the flex at Trent Sherfield every time he makes a play. Watch Cedric Wilson go greet Sherf after the touchdown pass. I mean, that was supposed to be his job, the number three receiver, right? He's pumped up for him. doesn't matter. Watch River Craycraft come off the sideline to give Scherf some love. These guys that compete for playing time, put all that aside and show genuine love and excitement for the successes of their teammates. Go watch Jeff Wilson score 
uh, that touchdown in Chicago and Raheem lose his ever-loving mind over it. Watch Christian Wilkins celebrate a sealer sack. Watch Jalen Phillips and Bradley Chubb already have a sack dance together. Look at the reaction on the sideline for Justin Bethel after his last of three pass breakups in the game at that cornerback position that's been really topsy-turvy this year. To me, that is the most special thing about this team through the first 10 weeks. You can feel those positive vibes. It's a credit to the coaching staff. It's a credit to the scouting staff for getting the right type of people. And it's certainly a credit to the players. So I just wanted to sort of lay out that prelude as to why I'm excited about this team and cannot wait to see how they can build off the success they've had so far. But to quote Tua Tungavailoa, what we came to do and what we came to accomplish, it's not accomplished yet. So it would be cool, speaking of a potential MVP award, but we have bigger goals and aspirations on what we want to do as a team. And really quickly before the takeaways, I wanted to write something. I used to do the one big thing, which was a ripoff of the SVP uh, Sports Center show every Sunday night after games on Locked On Dolphins. I miss doing that. So let's do it right now. One big thing, a little monologue on the first 10 weeks of the 2020 season and what it's meant to a lifelong Dolphins fan. So one big thing. 1995. That was the last time the Dolphins produced a top 10 NFL offense. Sure, they had some of the league's top defenses and even imported the best run game in the NFL in 2002 in an era where that was an acceptable model of team building and a legit path to a potential Super Bowl trophy. Or was it? Because that 2002 team had eight Pro Bowlers, just one number fewer than their win total that season, 9-7. and seven. A year without playoffs in a season where you had arguably the best roster in football. Little did we know at the time, the year prior, would be the last time or the most recent time that we witnessed a playoff victory and how sweet that was. But how did that victory come to be? It required a literal record-breaking day from running back. It required clutch catches by the most clutch receiver in Dolphins history, O.J. McDuffie. It required that defense bring its A game to slow the NFL's latest version of the triplets in Peyton Manning, Marvin Harrison, and Edger and James. It took an all-out, drag-it-out effort to find the winner's circle late into the overtime period, but that game could have been curtains much, much earlier had the Dolphins quarterback not turned the football over three times in that game. The same as we could have seen a potential return to the postseason in 2002 if it weren't for what can Trent Green do that Jay Fiedler cannot do. Just like the 2003 season could have gone to the postseason, if not for, you guessed it, Brian Greasy was the addition to the quarterback room that year. And again, this was before the league took steps to benefit the offense and make the NFL a passing league. And it was still a major hindrance. And that vacancy at the quarterback position would persist for nearly 20 more years. You've seen the list. You know the names. You can probably recite it off the top of your head chronologically. I know I can. The train slowly started heading that way in the early 2000s, but it was still doable to win divisions and dominate with that style of football. But looking back, can you say you enjoyed those 17-13 white-knuckle contests that came down to a bounce or two each week? Is that nearly as much fun as the offense that doesn't really punt and what you're seeing right now? Because the team continued to get built in that way. Of course, the 2004 season was one that no one could see coming with the retirement of Ricky Williams. Thanks a lot, Big Seth, JK. And sure enough, the next regime went right back to the defense. More 13-10 to 10 thrillers, baby. Hoo-wee! Then we get a star wide receiver, and you pair him with Chad Henney, and trade him before he can help our first first-round quarterback since Dan Reno. And it's back to 9-6 games, baby. All the while, it's 7-8 win seasons. It's too good to be bad and too bad to be good. The NFL's purgatory, the worst place a franchise can be. 
Nobody knows how this season will end. The odds are it's going to end in heartbreak. Only one team gets to host the Lombardi Trophy every year, and even the favorites' odds are fractional ones. But doesn't a late January broken heart, the potential of that, sound much better than starting the offseason in your head in late December? The Dolphins have a team that can compete with the best right now. They have a team built for the modern era. They have a coach who understands the modern athlete and a GM who understands the modern landscape for aggressiveness and identifying life cycles and when to keep putting investments into what looks like the best Dolphins team this century. I am enjoying this with everything in me. I'm enjoying watching all the discourse continue about who's to blame, why we have to discredit certain individuals. And the funniest thing about that is like, yeah, okay, sure. Tua has elite wide receivers, and this is somehow a bad thing for my favorite football team. You're wrong about what Tua's doing. We all know that. But thanks for the compliment and how this team was constructed properly and effectively and from the top down. Seven more games for sure, likely more after that. And there's not a team I look at and say, hey, we need a miracle to defeat that team. Strap in, Dolphins fans. You've been waiting a long time for this, and no matter how it goes, you have a seat at the table, and that's what you've been begging for since we put 13 up in the rafters. My first half of the season five takeaways are this. Number one, this team has multiple ways to win football games. The Dolphins have seven wins this season. Let's go ahead and examine each one of those victories. Over the Patriots on opening weekend, you get a defensive scoop and score early. Two more takeaways for three total. You allow them to go four for 10 on third and fourth down conversions. You go two for two on field goals. You have four punts totaling nearly 200 yards and a field flipping 58 yarder. And then the gravitas to go for it on fourth down with a perfect throw. Great catch and run in for six. The pressure on Mac Jones was unrelenting and the run defense held the Patriots to an average of 3.55 yards per carry in that game. Their season average when removing Miami's game is 4.21. So, more than half of a yard less than their season average. That win definition, smothering defense with multiple splash plays, quality special teams, and timely offense. My phone fell right there, by the way. That was that sound. At the Ravens, six touchdown passes for your quarterback's pretty good. Two receivers over a buck seventy, and four touchdowns among them, 371 yards among them. A 28-yard run on the game-winning drive with a huge hole opened up, untouched down inside the 15-yard line in a big spot making all six PATs in that game. And yes, this was an ode to the offense, but if you get a fourth down, if you don't get a fourth down stop rather before the tying touchdown, if you don't hold the Ravens to a field goal when the game is 35 all late in the fourth quarter, this offense's memorable day maybe becomes a footnote in a loss. Win definition, historic passing performance with timely late defense. Week three against the Bills, a takeaway early sets the offense up in a goal-to-go situation, holding arguably the most explosive offense in football. In fact, their 6.5 yards per play is number one right now in the NFL. You held them to 5.4 yards per play, more than a full yard less per play. Over 92 snaps too, by the way. Probably the best big moment throw of a young quarterback's career with that route to match from Waddle, a young receiver, to convert on third and 22 to set up the game-winning touchdown there in the fourth quarter. And it was the game winner because the defense held firm on not one but two fourth quarter long Josh Allen possessions. In the middle of that, yes, the safety off the butt punt. But in hindsight, considering Morstead nailed a 73-yard free kick that we covered beautifully to put the Bills on a long field, Maybe that was the best thing. It sure as hell was a nice response from the special teams. That win definition, terrific defensive game plan, and effort paired with a highly efficient big-time plays by the offense and the biggest play by the special teams coverage units on a play where they needed it most all year long. Took us four weeks to get our next win back under our belts, but over the Steelers in week number 
Seven, the offense issues an ideal game script with early multiple score lead that sustains drives and allows the defense to get long rest after stops. And that was set up by a first quarter interception from that same defense. The same defense that held the Steelers off the scoreboard in the entire second half, including two takeaways backed up right to the brink of touchdown here ends it. And we have to get stops in the next 15 yards. Otherwise, we're going to lose this game. And the offensive line began a streak that week of superb pass protection numbers. The win definition of that game, offense aids defense early with two score lead. And then the defense brings it home with a clean sheet in the second half. And the field goal team puts 10 points on the board, three field goals and one point after a try. Next week at the Lions, the offense keeps it close in the first half, a pay-it-forward type of deal from the second half of the Pittsburgh game, and those dynamic wideouts go crazy again. Another 194 between the Cheetah and the Penguin, but it's not just them. Gasicki, a huge touchdown, the winner in fact. Alec Ingold finds the end zone. The ground game gives you 107 on the ground, and the line protects the quarterback for four quarters for the second straight week. To help aid the offensive onslaught, the defense responds with a second-half shutout. Morstead's lone punt pins the Lions at their own 12-yard line, giving the defense 88 yards of field to work with on what would have been the last possession of the game for the Lions, or what would be, I should say. The offense then converts three first downs to end the game in victory formation. The win definition there, offense plays a nearly perfect game by utilizing every weapon at the skill spots, and the defense shows its resolve to absorb an early punch and respond with a second-half shutout aided on the final series by a special teams field flip. At the Bears, not that dissimilar to the Lions game. The last point scored in the game came with 11.38 to play in the fourth quarter as the defense had to have two stops in that fourth quarter, and they got them. The quarterback has another absurd day, throwing plenty again to 10-17. and 17. Another 228 and two scores from those guys. The team gets a lift from a couple of new additions, including 79 yards and a touchdown from Jeff Wilson and another stellar day from the offensive line. The pass rush just kept coming, DBs kept covering, and the defense resolved once again, showed itself again. The win definition there. Offensive fireworks with over 300 yards and three touchdowns coming from Tyreek, Jalen, and Jeff Wilson. More third down excellent and a highly efficient football from Tua, capped off by two late stops from the defense. Finally, the Browns. This had been building towards complimentary football all year long, and this was the coming out party. Offense goes off again, but this time using every piece of the offense and a more spread it around output. The run game rolls up nearly 200 yards in the, on the ground. Five guys make at least four catches, seven have at least two, and eight players in total have receptions in the game. Third down excellence continues. No punt game needed at all. Pass rush finally gets time to throw, and that converts all those pressures into sacks and impact plays. Run defense wins better than 80% of their snaps with short running gains. The defense takes the ball away, gives the offense short fields. Everything comes together. The definition of that one, the culmination of all those games where you're so close to putting together a complete game for four quarters, pass game, run game, run D, pass rush coverage, all clicking in this one. So really, you've got wins by every conceivable variable. Run game, pass game, defensive splash plays and takeaways, late stands and disciplined game plans, timely special teams, stellar individual stat lines, really every which way. Through 10 games, the most tried and true way has been the electric passing game, then probably the stout defensive game with a critical takeaway for a short uh, a score or a short field and preventing points late in the game. Then probably the run game and special teams, but they've proven that all these things can be key factors in the route to victory. Let's go ahead and take our first break and come back for takeaways two through five. That's next on the Drive Time Podcast. Your host, Travis Wingfield, brought to you by AutoNation. Live Nation presents Concert Week. 
Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Big picture items from this season so far. The bye week coming up this Sunday. Plenty of fun games to watch around the league. We'll get to that here in just a moment. In our third segment, we're going to go ahead and pick it back up with takeaways two through five through 10 weeks of the 2022 season. And where else can you go besides the emergence of Tua Tungavailoa? This one is brief because we've been over it. Like High-level stuff, executing on structure and putting the ball in locations on time when it's all right and executed like it's drawn up, but also mitigating for the occasional breakdowns when they happen. Improvising both with the scramble and pocket mobility, but also getting very deep into his progressions quickly. Beating man, zone, blitz, coverage, killing teams on third down, red zone, goal to go, the fourth quarter. Doesn't matter. It's just seven games. It's just seven games. But those seven games are pacing towards something we just don't see. We are talking about not just the top of this year's leaderboard, the top of some all-time leaderboards in those stats we talked about. Rating, third down rating, red zone rating, yards per attempt, net yards per attempt. A quarterback who has full command of the offense in his third year, his first in the system, the full trust and backing of his coaches, players, the fan base, and a true leader of not just the offense, but the entire football team, Really, in the 2022 season, it's been the model quarterback. I don't know how else you say it, but I do want to attempt to say it this way. You know, social media discourse absolutely exhausts me, and I don't engage nearly as often as I used to. I'm, I've instituted a mostly firm policy of not giving a platform to the content created just for the absurdity of it all, like the circus of it all. You know, I asked the media room the other day, who is that for? Who watches these hot takes on television shows. Why would we care the takes of people that demonstrate time and time again that it's not nuanced conversation, it's not based in film study? I don't know. It's not that hard to find smart content if you have the internet. I know the casual fan's not going to go search the annals of the internet for contextual analysis, but to watch that knowing what it is, I just don't get who it's for, but it's popular. So the joke's on me, right? But man, I see this stuff every single day. Inventing new ways to bend back to affirm a previous take but for what? For some flowers on social media? I can tell you right now, go back and listen to just about every draft episode of Drive Time in 2020 or Locked on Dolphins the year before that. You'll find 78 versions of me saying some version of this take. Two was the best college quarterback I've ever seen in the fine details of the position. The subtleties that make for a franchise-altering quarterback play. Manipulation, accuracy, post-snap acumen paired with a quickness in all of his ball handling and release that mitigates any chance a pass rush has most of the time. I mean, I'll try to not injure myself, pat myself on the back here, but God, man, I think I feel confident saying I nailed that evaluation, but guess what? Nobody cares. Work harder, right? So why do we have to regress to mental gymnastics and just hoping that our conditions and justifications for why a player is having success are factual because the crap that I see, I can supremely confidently tell you it's not rooted in fact. It's not based on study. It's based on hypothesizing without doing the research to confirm or deny said hypothesis. How many times do we do segments here where I put out a thought, research, 
and confirm that I was wrong. That's the beauty of chemistry. Right, Mr. Right? Yeah, science, growth, decay, then transformation. Cut the tape. It's elite. You think Mike McDaniel would lie about that? What purpose would telling the entire locker room after the Browns game, hey, this dude right here, number one, is playing at an elite level if he wasn't? Players aren't stupid. They would know that's a lie if it was. You think McDaniel's lying about that? I thought we trusted and believed in what he's done here to the point that we can all agree that his word carries some pretty significant weight, right? Because if you're telling me that Tyreek and Jalen and Mike McDaniel are the only reasons Tua is succeeding, Mike himself would disagree with you. So that, by its very nature, is a contradiction. Like, what are we doing? Why do we have to get definitive confirmation at the same speed of a hungry man meal warming up in the microwave? Why can we exercise no patience whatsoever? Talent is talent. Sometimes circumstances change. Sometimes development occurs. A lot of the best quarterbacks in the league right now did not hit right away. Tua, Josh Allen, Jalen Hurts. Look at what's going on with Justin Fields in Chicago. It's why we should always factor in context. I mean, we've seen Chargers fans, right, telling us about the depleted injury riddle roster right now. It doesn't go both ways, though. Don't mistake context for excuses and demand the irrelevance of anything but the bottom line. Don't do that for two reasons. One, it's just straight bad process. And two, these guys are people too, man. And I can't imagine straight up using another human being as a prop for, hell, I don't even know what for. Social media clout? The ability to promote a blog or podcast or handle with the title of I told you player X wasn't good three years ago. It's weird. Tua is the kind of guy that when you're talking to him, he puts his hand on your shoulder, looks you in the eye and engages with you with the same level of interest and intrigue, regardless if you're a stupid, goofy podcaster or the president of the football team. He's truly one of the biggest and brightest spirits I've ever been around. And to me, and it's a damn shame that he's covered with a different standard than all of his contemporaries around him. That's takeaway number two. Takeaway number three, always thinking about how to improve. At first, I thought, let's revisit the offseason and look at how many impact newcomers have solidified important roles on this football team. But then I got to thinking, there's a better way to phrase this. Chris Greer always talks about taking every opportunity to upgrade the roster and a year-round pursuit of doing just that, right? Not just scouting the draft, not just signing free agents, not just moves via the trade market, but scouring things in season, bringing in Brandon Shell, Justin Bethel, trading for Bradley Chubb and Jeff Wilson. Those are four big time moves after an offseason that's right up there all time in this franchise in terms of total impact and production being important to the team. Because remember, when they began this thing really in earnest back in 2019, collecting picks, saving up for potential spending sprees in the future by clearing the books into future seasons and keeping your management of that cap flexible and fluid, they always had more resources than what you would need if you hit on all those resources. And what is that other than protecting against the idea that nobody ever bats a thousand and nobody ever will? But how about recognition of where you might need to continue to funnel resources to hit on a cater Kohu, maybe the draft pick at that spot in the first round didn't go as you would hope to recognize the first round potential left tackle is better suited at right tackle and to go get an elite left tackle in Teron Armstead in the process to not sit back on the production of a Jalen Waddle. Let's go ahead and pair him with an even more proven version of his play style to say that, yeah, Eric Rowe, Brandon Jones, Bobby McCain's a nice trio, but Javon Holland's a different cat. 
You can really take this back multiple off-seasons by the way it's been built with contributions from draft classes going four years back or six years back in the case of Mike Gesicki or eight years back in the case of Xavier Howard. The culmination of multiple very good drafts, some clever maneuvering in the trade market, some aggressive but measured free agent periods with flexibility. It's been really cool to track this thing get built from my chair in my perspective, and it's such a joy to see them enjoy some fruits of that labor with seven wins in the first 10. Takeaway number four, coaching staff revisit. Just looking at the introduction article I wrote on the coaching staff and the five things piece about Mike McDaniel up on MiamiDolphins.com back in February or late January, we highlighted the resumes and staff that Mike had mentioned so many times was such a high priority of his to assemble this group, to bring Wes and Embo in from San Francisco, to go get one of the most qualified quarterback coaches on the planet and Coach Bev. Then you pull Matt Applebaum from the college ranks to add a brilliant mind like Frank Smith, to add legends to the defensive staff like Sam and Pat, and to retain some coaches who've proven themselves here in Miami with production from their particular position groups to promote someone like Steve Gregory, who's played and coached in this system and to add a Ty McKenzie who has an insane recall and analytical mind for the game. And the production for that room has been something too. From that article, the Dolphins coaching staff features 183 years of combined NFL experience and in total between high school, college, and NFL has more than 300 combined years of coaching experience. The 2002 Dolphins co- 2022 Dolphins coaching staff has coached five Super Bowl winning teams. Number five, signs of pass rush emergence. I thought the Cleveland game was, like we talked about earlier, the culmination of what's been bubbling near the surface for a while. So like I did earlier this year, I'm going to call my shot like with the points production catching up, the run game catching up, and now with the pass rush coming out of the bye like a house on fire. They are talented, they are multiple, and they can get home with four. And there are a lot of elements of this pass rush you can look at and hang your hat on. It starts off the edge, the pass rush win rate from ESPN for edge defenders. Bradley Chubb's number three at 28%. Jalen Phillips is number 10 at 22%. We've also seen Melvin Ingram impact several games. We know that he leads a team with four sacks. We know that Andrew Van Ginkle and what he can do. And we know about the versatile dudes inside. Christian Wilkins and his potential expanded opportunities as a result of that unrelenting edge pressure really popped up in this last game. And it paid off with Christian Wilkins getting the job done, getting involved in a couple of sacks. He's probably going to get a lot more one-on-one chances as teams work to contend with all that talent and speed and power off the edges. Those NASCAR packages and the stress they can put on teams sure are fun. Wilkins was the focal point of it in the Cleveland game. Looks with Phillips, Chubb, Mel, and Christian, then a bevy of DBs and Baker or Duke in coverage. It's a tough ask for opposing offenses because you have specialists that can execute multiple different things on that particular look. Speaking of rushing four from that last game, Brissett was blitzed on just nine of his 42 dropbacks. That's 21%. His passer rating was 84.3 against four or fewer rushers and 103.5 against the blitz. And that's coming from a team with the blitz rate with a 30% blitz rate this season. So they reduced it by a pretty good measure there. I'm not at all saying scrap the blitz. This defense is multiplicity and ability to get To be week-to-week game plan specific is my favorite aspect of it, but it's just another nice tool to have in the bag. So for that reason, and plus Cater Kohu's emergence, the play of Justin Bethel, 
Uh, Javon Holland's getting a little bit more and more work down in the box and the mess to make more plays down there. And then just getting healthier over the bye week. I think the pass rush is really bubbling up and getting better every single week and could take off big time in the second half of the season. Let's take our last break here. We'll come back and look at some season stats and the leaderboards for the Dolphins heading into the bye week. And we'll also pick the week 11 games and talk about that landscape. That's next Drive Time Podcast. Your host, Travis Wingfield, brought to you by AutoNation. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. This was a lot of fun to assemble the stats so far through 10 games, through 10 weeks for your 2022 Miami Dolphins. We start with the passing game and Tua Tungavailoa, we've been over this. He's first in passer rating, uh, total QBR, EPA per play, touchdown percentage, yards per attempt, net yards per attempt, adjusted net yards per attempt. I, you know, I'm a big Tua guy. I can't even say I saw this coming. Like I was very bullish on the guy for the last couple of years, but this like, come on, man. He's second in completion percentage, fewest sack percentage, completion percentage over expected via next gen. His on-target throw percentage trails only Aaron Rodgers per pro football references advanced stats. They say that Tua has 80.6% of his passes on target. Aaron Rodgers is 80.8%. He's third in yards per game, passer rating under pressure. And in fact, that pro football focus metric, let's give you the full pressure numbers there. 27 for 50 for 362 yards. That's 54%, 7.2 yards per pass, three touchdowns and no picks against pressure. No fumbles either. No turnovers under pressure. And for posterity, that YPA is fourth among quarterbacks with at least 40 dropbacks against pressure. And the completion percentage is fifth. So top five and pressure categories across the board too. Like what more do you want from the guy? He's fourth in lowest interception rate across the NFL. Rushing stats, Raheem's 20 forced missed tackles are tied for 19th among running backs. Jeff Wilson has 19. That's tied for 21st. And in fact, only the Dolphins, Bears, and Vikings have two players in the top 21 of that category. Jeff Wilson's 11 runs of 15 plus yards is the fourth most in football this year. He has 118 carries and the three guys ahead of him have 202, 198, and 160. So he has the highest average of 15 plus yard runs per carry this season. Raheem Mostert has the 13th most runs of 15 plus yards. He's got six of them. He's also 10th with 18 runs of 10 plus yards. That's a lot of numbers there. What I'm telling you is both these guys hit explosive runs at high rates. Jeff Wilson's 5.4 yards per carry is 14th in the NFL. Receiving, buckle up. It's like the quarterback position. Tyreek is first in receptions, receiving yards, first downs, yards per route ran, deep ball receptions and yards, 14 for 473 on throws of 20 plus air yards. Thought he wasn't going to be able to take advantage of that anymore. So much for that. He's second in yards per game. He's fourth in yards per target. He's tied for ninth with his nine contested catches. He's five foot eight, five foot nine. How tall is he? Of the eight guys with more contested catches, Tyreek has a higher contested catch rate than all but two of them. He's at 60%, 9 of 15. The only guys higher are two of the best high pointers in the National Football League. Mike Evans and Terry McLaurin from that group have a higher contested catch rate. Terry McLaurin's an elite, elite receiver, by the way. I've been saying that for a while. Mike and JT in video, I make that argument very strongly. 
Waddle is first in yards per target. He's third in yards per reception. He's fourth in receiving yards and yards per route ran. Only Jefferson, Diggs, and Hill have more deep ball receptions. He's fifth in first downs in yards per game, and he's tied for fifth in receiving touchdowns. He's eighth in deep ball yardage, and he's 12th in catches. Defensively, Christian Wilkins is fifth among interior defensive linemen in pro football focuses run stops metric, and Zach Sealer is seventh. Jalen Phillips is eighth among edge defenders in PFF pressures and 23rd in run stops. Chubb is 17th in pressures and 19th in run stops. The defense is tougher to peg because most categories are league-wide. So like Javon Holland's 40th in tackles, but that includes like all positions. And we play really good team defense that's not really been a stat-piling defense, but I do like these two numbers a lot. Team pass rush win rate, they are 6th at 48%, and team run stop win rate 10th at 31%. All right, once again, last podcast of the week. Let's go ahead and make our Week 11 picks during the bye and tell you about which games to keep an eye on. Let's go ahead and make the picks first. Give me the Packers over the Titans on Thursday night football. Typically take the home team here. I think both these teams have kind of, you know, at least the Titans have played above their belt. The Packers, I shouldn't say that. They just came up a five-game losing streak. But I think they'll get going more in the right direction. Packers over Titans. Give me the Bears over the Falcons. I'm so pumped about Justin Fields, what he's doing with the Chicago Bears. Give me the Eagles to bounce back over the Colts. Congratulations, by the way, to the 1972 team popping champagne after the Eagles lost on Monday Night Football. But they'll get right over the Colts. Big one here, Patriots over Jets. That's a big game to watch in the AFC East. Give me Houston over Washington. Give me New Orleans over the Rams. Give me the Bills over the Browns. Uh, Let's do Ravens over the Panthers. I think the Titans will get back. Or not the Titans, what am I talking about? The Lions. The Lions will get a win over the Giants and a big upset there. Give me the Broncos over the Raiders. It's kind of the battle of the upset team, or the uh, disappointing teams, I should say, in the AFC West. Give me the Cowboys after that emotional win by the Vikings and they'll get right after losing to the Packers. I'll take the Cowboys over Minnesota. Give me the Bengals over the Steelers, the Chiefs over the Chargers. Great Sunday night football game there. And the Niners over the Cardinals. As far as like what you should be looking for this weekend, uh, there's a really good mix of games for Dolphins purposes, all three time slates. The 10 a, or the 1 o'clock slate. How, I'm three years on the East Coast. They'll call it 10 a.m. slot. The 1 o'clock time slot, Jets and, and Patriots. We want the Patriots to win that game, the lower win team in the division take down the Jets, also have the head-to-head win over the Dolphins. So as long as the Patriots beat the Jets, Miami can maintain their first-place position in the AFC East. Also in that same time frame, the Bills and Browns is a big one. I know the the Bills are kind of in their mid-season slump they seem to go through every year the last couple of years. We know they're going to wind up getting hot and playing good football at the end of the year, though. But in this game, with like multiple feet of snow and crazy wind expected, perhaps Nick Chubb and that Browns running game can maybe do some of their stuff with a Bills passing game. Maybe can't. I don't know. That'd be nice to see if if we can get a couple of losses there in division coming out of the bye week. Those are the two big ones. And then in the afternoon, I think just for potential seeding purposes, uh, the Steelers over the Bengals for the second time this year would be nice. That's the 425 slate. And then I'm kind of having a hard time figuring out what we want on Sunday night because if you're trying to play for a top seed, like you want the Chargers to win, but if the Bills can come back and win the division, you kind of want to compete for a better wild card spot against the Chargers. So that's kind of a tough one. I am thinking this team's going to get really hot, this Dolphins team, in the second half of the season. So I am rooting for the best possibilities, which means the one seed, so go Chargers, although I am picking the Chiefs in that one. And that's it. Those are your four big ones to look at this weekend in the AFC. Of course, the Ravens as well. But if you look at the Ravens' schedule, they're they're probably going to coast to the AFC North title. So I'm not really factoring them because they have a really easy road the rest of the way. But they do play the Panthers on Sunday. 
Uh, Texans preview next Tuesday on the podcast. We'll talk to Mark Vandermeer, the voice of the Texans for perspective from Houston. That'll be Wednesday. Enjoy the bye week, everybody. Twitter spaces is back tonight. So check out me, Seth and juice eight o'clock at my Twitter timeline at Wingfield NFL, where you can find me on Twitter. You can find the dolphins also at Miami dolphins, subscribe, rate, review all the stuff. Check out the fish tank. Again, the Twitter spaces show tonight at eight o'clock international podcast on the network. No post game show this week, but back in two weeks with the Houston Texans. Check out the team YouTube channel for media availabilities. Dolphins Today, Drive Time, and Fish Tank content. And last but not least, MiamiDolphins.com. Until next time, fins up, Caroline. Daddy's coming home for a few days.